Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. It's so important for us to continually learn and have up-to-date knowledge about conditions experienced by the people we work with. Today, I'm really excited to be deep diving into one such condition, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder with Kate Pollard. Kate is the director and senior speech pathologist at Melaleuca Therapies, a private practice located in Nulamboy, a township on Longu country in East Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Kate is a member of the Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Hub Australia and has experience working on FASD diagnostic teams with paediatricians and other health professionals. She's also a Speak Up podcast veteran, having been interviewed about her experiences of being a rural and remote clinician back in season two. Welcome back to the podcast, Kate. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be back. Now, I am so looking forward to learning more about FASD today, and I will be honest, it's not an area I know a huge amount about, but I'm wondering if a good place to start might be to explore what we currently know about alcohol use in Australia. Yeah, sure. Um, As we all know, um, alcohol is such an integral part to the Australian identity and always has been. Uh, a few beers down at the pub, a few beers at the footy, beers with mates. And I think it's quite overlooked as a a serious issue, the the consumption of alcohol within Australia. Um, It's very widespread across the nation through most um, most communities as well. Um, There has been a slight shift in the younger generation's um, with slight decrease in alcohol consumption, or it is very slight. Um, but the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare record that around 77% of Australians aged 14 and over have consumed at least one full serve of alcohol in the past 12 months. So, you know, we're talking about teenagers. Mm, young kids. Um, yeah, yeah, starting really young with, with alcohol. So it, it's something that is so socially positively regarded in Australian society that it's we just overlook it. Yeah. Mm, so interesting. Um, so, Kate, what actually is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Yeah, so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a neurodevelopmental impairment and it's due to brain damage, actually, that was caused by exposure of a developing fetus to alcohol. And the exposure could happen at any time during pregnancy. And the first, I think it is the first 13 weeks are the most important, mm-hmm. yeah, to abstain from alcohol. Not that I'm saying you should drink at all, but 
Um, it is those first 13 weeks where the fetus is at its most vulnerable to the effects of alcohol. So I understand that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is an umbrella term that covers a number of different subcategories. I'm just wondering if you would mind clarifying what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder actually is and what the subcategories underneath it actually are. Yes. So um, within Australia, the official terminology for FASD or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, did change in 2016. There were previous other terms that were used. However, since then in Australia and Canada, the the umbrella term is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder with two subcategories. And the subcategories are fetal alcohol spectrum disorder with three sentinel facial features. And the second subcategory is FASD, um, fetal alcohol syndrome spectrum disorder, apologies, with less than three sentinel facial features. So there's only two subcategories that um, are current in Australia now. And what are the sentinel facial features? Have I said that right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Um, So that's the small, uh, the smooth philtrum, the the ridges between your nose and your upper lip. Mm -hmm. It's a thin upper lip and short palpable fissures, which is basically the the width of your eye opening. So from the corner of your inner eye to the the outer corner of your eye. Um, And usually the measurement of those sentinel features is part of the um, paediatrician role in Mm. diagnosis. So it's good to be aware of those as speech pathologists, but it's not necessarily our role to Mm. make those measurements and that determination. Mm, For sure. So I guess what are some of the general signs and symptoms of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Well, the biggest one would be the facial features. Yeah. So generally a, a child with those three facial features and confirmed um, consumption of alcohol by the mother during pregnancy is a fair indication that a child will be diagnosed with FASD. Um, some of the other quite common um, signs and symptoms would be difficulty retaining information. So memory is impacted quite significantly often. Um, and also difficulty responding to cause and effect or understanding consequences in behaviour. So often with children with FASD, um, they may repeat a behaviour over and over again despite having some intervention and support around that behaviour because they're not understanding that the consequence of the behaviour or the antecedent um, Mm. to the consequence. Uh, However, I will say that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder does... um, have a key in its name and that is spectrum Mm. so no child with FASD is like another they are Mm. all individuals they all have various signs and symptoms Um, and there are actually I think there's potentially 10 neurodevelopmental areas that they may be impacted in but they aren't always impacted in each of those areas so it is a varied disorder in how it may present 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm gathering so from one person to the other how many of those 10 boxes and which 10 boxes or which boxes are ticked would be yeah. so variable, Yes, meaning everyone's different, I suppose. Yeah. I'm just wondering, Kate, is there any guidelines around how much alcohol a mother would consume during pregnancy that would be um, considered past the threshold, I suppose, of um, of safety or is it any alcohol? What are the guidelines around that at the moment? Yeah, great question. And this comes back to how widespread alcohol use is within Australia. Mm-hmm. So there is no safe amount of alcohol to be consumed during pregnancy or even conception. Um, interestingly, there is some research happening at the moment around the impact of alcohol on sperm. Mm. So we're actually unsure of the impact of the implications of that and how that may be impacting the fetus as well. So Mm. the new message is um, that no alcohol is safe for a mother or a father through conception or pregnancy. Mm, That's so interesting, isn't it? So I'm just so fascinated about the speech pathology role in, I guess, if we start at the start, in diagnosis. Mm. And I know this is something that you have quite a bit of experience in. So what what is the speech pathology role in diagnosis? So it's to be a part of the team. So for a diagnosis of FASD, you really do need a multidisciplinary team involved. There are so many factors that need to be considered. um, And looking at the 10 neurodevelopmental areas that you may find deficits in. Um, They include things like gross motor, fine motor, um, memory, um, cognition and learning capacity, as well as communication and social Mm. connection. Uh, So it's being a part of a team and then having your input as a speech pathologist into the various areas such as communication. Um, But I would like to sort of reiterate that speech pathologists often have more knowledge than just around communication. So they do make um, observations of social connection with others and also just a a child's general functioning and their play so we can play quite a large part in the team. Mm. Well, who's in the team, just out of interest? What professionals are, or are there even guidelines that say who needs to be in a diagnostic team? There is actually a fantastic guide for diagnosis. Uh, through the FASD hub, they have available the Australian Guide to Diagnosis of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, and it is a fantastic guide. It really steps anybody through the whole process of diagnosis, um, including visual measurements, um, visual guides to measuring the lip filtrum. Um, it's it's an actually a really fantastic resource for anybody interested or anybody already involved in the diagnostic process. Um, the team really should be made up of speech pathologists as well as an occupational therapist, potentially a physiotherapist, uh, when available, a neuropsychologist um, Mm. working in remote regions. We don't have access to that sort of resource. So the teams that I'm often involved with up here would be with a paediatrician, a speech pathologist, occupational therapist and physio. Mm, that's yeah that's a lot of professionals isn't it It is is. that like a set team specifically 
for, um, I guess I'm thinking that we have obviously autism spectrum disorder diagnostic teams that are very well established. Is your team specifically for the diagnosis of FASD or is it more of a developmental team? It's a developmental team. So often when we have an individual coming in for a, a potential diagnosis or a concern around their development, we look at everything. So we will consider whether they may meet criteria for autism or whether they meet criteria for FASD or they meet criteria for some other diagnosis. Um, Being in a remote area, we cover a very large region and we cover a a variety of clients. So we need to be flexible with that. Mm. But there is a team that does um, work specifically with FASD um over in western australia and they have started in the northern territory as well so going back to the guidelines that you mentioned is there any other um guidelines within there around things like the minimum age for diagnosis for instance yes so a diagnosis is generally made once a child turns seven right yeah so it's actually a lot older yeah that seems quite late but (laughs) yes so Um, Prior to seven, we may be able to identify a child who is at risk of FASD, um, specifically if it is already known that there was alcohol consumption during pregnancy, then we can say that that child may be at risk. And they're often monitored quite closely by the paediatrician and um, other services that might be involved, such as speech pathologist or OT. And the reason being for such a later diagnosis is because there is so much to cover. So to be able to cover the full spectrum of neurodevelopmental areas, um, given that time to make sure that assessments are completed, especially when we're looking at our cognitive Mm. and learning assessments, most of those are sort of usually done around the seven years of age as well. So Mm. to cover all bases, um, the diagnosis is made from seven years Mm. of age. So is there a requirement for standardised assessment then? It sounds like perhaps like a cognitive, a standardised cognitive assessment is essential. Is there any other guidelines around that? There are, yes. So the the guide that I spoke about previously um, does list appropriate tools that can be used for diagnosis, standardised assessments. Um, often we will complete a self-assessment. Mm. Um, however, working with the Indigenous population we will also make clinical judgments on on their language using an interpreter mm. and so forth. Um, and then they do list other assessments, assessment tools, um, such as the BIRI and the BOT that are used by the physio and the OT for gross and fine motor assessment. Mm-hmm. But the self is generally the one used by the speech pathologist by the sounds of it. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So... Specifically, what kind of speech and language challenges are you noticing with this group? Yes, interesting. Um, What I've found in my experience, um, I I won't generalise this too far, but in my own experience, what I have noticed is that the children that I work with generally are very good at conversational speech. Mm -hmm. So they can have a, a lovely conversation with you however there's not a lot of depth to the language that they're using and they'll be able to have um, lovely surface discussions around known topics 
to them. However, when we dig a, dig a little bit deeper, there is a, um, quite a substantial language delay and, and or disorder. Mm. In any particular areas, like are you noticing it's more in vocab or uh, more in grammar or uh, semantics or is it just something kind of across the board that you're seeing a, a you know, fair, fairly consistent delay across the board? I would say it's a fairly consistent delay across the board, yes. Mm. So definitely um, a delay in vocabulary mm. um, and they'll often have a really contextualised vocabulary so it's very whatever they've been exposed to and um, Mm. that they know specifically and will often be very good at masking that. Mm. Um, So are able to use strategies to divert the conversation back to something that they're aware of and have a a Mm. lovely really social chit-chat with you. Mm. Um, And often this can be overlooked for quite some time until you really dig a bit deeper and and do those standardised assessments, yeah. Um, it sounds yeah. It sounds like making connections. Like they've got some surface level great language happening, but it's that making connections between all of that. And I could imagine once a, a little one starts school, some of these difficulties would become more obvious. Is that is that right compared to perhaps when they're in, in preschool? Yes, I would say so. I think across the board, it becomes a little bit more obvious once you're at school. Often mm. attention is really difficult for a child with VASD. Um, understanding obviously those higher level requests and things that are um, in place at school versus at home with your family. Yeah. Mm. And what about transitioning to written language? Is there anything in that space? Are these kids more at risk of having difficulties transitioning to written language? Yeah, absolutely. We do see the link between verbal language and literacy. So um, we will often see a child with FASD have difficulty with reading and writing and there can be many variables with that. Um, The visual perception uh, along with their own vocabulary um, deficits can, yeah, Mm. be really, can be quite difficult to Mm. establish reading and writing skills. It's really complex, isn't it? And um, challenges for these kids in so many areas. I can imagine, yeah, life is is not easy for these kids. It's, um, yeah, interesting. Um, So are there any protective factors that can improve outcomes for kids with FASD? Well, the main protective factor would be for to abstain from alcohol during pregnancy. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And Preventative is better than the cure, definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about, one? you know, obviously, unfortunately, this little one, that hasn't happened for this little one. Are there protective factors around family or um, other supports that, that might lead to better outcomes for them? So early intervention is key. Um, being able to support an individual from a really early age despite not having a diagnosis. As we know, the diagnosis mm. is, is later, but just identifying the individual having difficulties early and then being able to implement the supports around them and putting in strategies and supporting the parents with understanding why their child might be having difficulties or the areas that they are having difficulty in. So that early identification and then early intervention for sure. Mm. And are you finding these kids that might, you know, get a diagnosis at seven are able to access NDIS in that early intervention space? Most of the time, yes. 
Okay. Gen- generally that's because their communication will be delayed or disordered from early on. Again, that's a sweeping statement. But the individuals that I've been involved with generally are identified early as having developmental delays. Right. And it's when we start to piece the puzzle together that we eventually come to the conclusion, that's yeah, that they meet the FASD criteria. Well, that's great. That's great to hear that there is that um, financial support for early intervention um, pre-diagnosis. That's awesome. It sounds a little bit like ADHD. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying that as an aside. I don't know if that's true, but well, some of how you've described the frontal, like it sounds quite frontal lobe yes. um, challenged yeah. and some of those working memory and so, yeah, I don't know. It just sounds... Well, ADHD is also another indicator. So ADHD is is one of the, you know, if you've got a a child who's having difficulty with memory and and has ADHD, um, has a language disorder, you really need to look more broadly and potentially refer to an occupational therapist, uh, a paediatrician, a neuropsychologist for further assessment. Mm, Um, Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's some of the areas that speech pathologists can probably identify early is that that attention and that overactivity um, and then the memory I think is a really big one often mm. that we might be teaching a skill and the child comes in the following week and hasn't retained the skill mm-hmm. mm. or may lose it within a within a few weeks and then mm. often to me that's a, a bit of a red flag to go oh, there's something else going on here and to really dig a bit deeper mm. to find mm. out what the cause is or, or what other areas they might be having some difficulties in. Mm, That's so interesting. So if I can move you on to intervention then, what is the speech pathology role in intervention? And I can imagine it might change a little bit across the lifespan and perhaps pre-diagnosis, post-diagnosis, et cetera. But I'm just really interested in your thoughts about what our role is in intervention. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you said, the intervention role does change over the lifespan. And For speech pathologists, I think there's the opportunity to take a more proactive, um, a proactive health promotion role in those early stages. Many of us are involved with mothers' groups um, or with young children or even with teenagers and providing that education around alcohol and the impacts of that on an unborn fetus are, are really valuable at those various stages throughout life. And I think we we have the opportunity with our relationships with various people to impart that knowledge. Um, but beyond that, in our traditional role, it is around supporting the various and individualised language, speech and pragmatic development. And this will change across the lifespan. Obviously, early on, we might be working on vocabulary expansion. But then once we're looking at a teenager or even an adult Mm. with FASD, working on the vocabulary that they need for for their functional vocabulary. Mm. So what they need for their job or for their Mm. schoolwork um, and meeting the needs for that individual. Mm. Do Do you find many adults do come back? for um, intervention support or is that quite unusual? Um, In my experience, I haven't had many adults come back. Um, In the region where I work, the diagnosis of FASD is fairly new. Mm. It's not something that's been diagnosed for a long time um, or identified for, for very long. So as 
yeah, within my experience, no, not yet. I haven't had many FASD individuals mm-hmm. come back. I have had some older teens where mm-hmm. we've implemented some strategies when they were younger and things were progressing well. They had other areas of need, so they've gone on to, you know, spend a lot more time with OT um, as an example. And then later when they're in later stages of high school, come back for specific support around literacy and mm. or specific vocabulary expansion, depending on part-time jobs and things like that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome to hear. That's awesome. And I know that it is, a, I guess, a developing area um, that we're developing our understanding in, but it would be fantastic if um, we had resources out there to support adults or people at different stages in their life, because I can imagine that the challenges that someone with FASD experiences would um, pop up at different stages of their life and different stages would need different supports, even for things like, I don't know, putting together a really great speech at your wedding. I don't know, things that that are really meaningful for that person and to be able to have supports out there where people can pop back in adulthood would be fantastic. But hopefully, you know, as you said, it's a growing area and it's something that hopefully evolves. Now, Uh, Where can clinicians go for specific training? This is such a specific area. I'm just really fascinated. And I know you have received some um, additional training in this space. And I'm just really interested to know where you went and what you would recommend. Yeah. Well, I was really lucky to be able to attend um, a workshop run by Patches. And Patches is the organisation that have been doing some fantastic work around FASD across Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Um, but beyond that, there is the, the fasdhub.org.au um, website, which is fantastic. It is great. I'd love yeah. you to give, a, to give us all a bit of a description because it is really, um, someone's done an amazing job putting that together. Absolutely. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah. So on the website, there's information available for parents. There's information available for professionals. And it does include the the guide to diagnosis. It's a fantastic website full of information. And they also um, include some webinars for professional development and information. So it's a, it's a great resource and certainly where I gather most of the information that I require. Um, and there is also for further education, there is a graduate certificate in diagnosis of FASD. Oh, wow. Who's yeah. that through? Yeah, so um, University of Western Australia have been oh. offering that. Um, I do know that there are others, other courses around Australia. There is a clinic on the Gold Coast, and sorry, I'm not going to remember the name of that off the top of my head, but they, yeah, they specialise in FASD as well and do offer training um, in particular around the diagnosis of FASD that I would, yeah, recommend any speech pathologist to, to have a look into what's available and, and look at learning more about FASD. Um, I think many of us will find that previous clients will come to mind and sort of think, oh, you know what, that yeah. may have actually been the, the right diagnosis for them. They may actually fit that picture. Mm. I know that the um, the hub also lists um, professionals that have expertise in this yes. space and um, I think that would be really helpful for clinicians too that if you maybe feel like this is not your area and you w- would like to refer someone you're working with to um, a clinician that has expertise that there are a number of speech pathologists listed on there there's also yes. a number of psychologists um, occupational therapists um, I think pediatricians um, but there's quite a um, 
extensive list of professionals with additional training that would be um, certainly worth consulting if, um, yeah, you were wanting um, a little one you're working with to be supported by people that do have expertise. Yeah. It is a great site. It really is. I don't know who's put that together or whether the government has funded that, but it's... um, it's a yeah, very professional and um, site that covers a lot of information, that's for sure. It is. It's fantastic. Um, so finally, I would love any take-home messages that you might have, Kate, specifically for working with this clinical group. I think the biggest take-home message would be that every person with a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is an individual and they all have individual needs and it's really down to the professionals uh, to support those individual needs. It's not going to be a, a one-size-fits-all um, situation for them. Um, I also really believe that we're in a great place to bust some myths out there around the use of alcohol. I still have friends of mine who say, oh, it's just one drink while I'm pregnant and it's, it's not just one drink. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a really underdiagnosed condition within Australia Um, and it is often also thought of as an Indigenous problem and it's not. It is very Mm. widespread and very much underdiagnosed and I think we could be doing a lot more to help individuals across the nation with this condition. Mm. So that health promotion side is something we shouldn't forget about, is it? It's um, Sometimes we have our clinical hat on but you're right. Um, that health promotion side is really an important part of our role as well. And you're right. I mean, as you said, alcohol use is so entrenched in the Australian culture. And um, this, I could imagine, is a a problem that touches every level of society in Australia. Uh, Maybe it is a bit more well hidden in certain, um, certain areas because people... I don't know, are more privileged and have access to more services, et cetera. But it is something that touches every corner um, of society, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, it is uh, shrouded with in stigma that, you know, it's mum's fault. She drank. Yeah, and yeah. we can't, when when we're talking about the the societal norms of drinking and then to place blame on someone for that drinking is really unfair. So I think it's a a wider understanding of the use of alcohol and wider acceptance that maybe somebody has has had a drink and, and this is the result of that and we're not placing blame on people, we're not placing blame on the mother. We're just there to support the child or the, the individual that may be struggling mm. with a few things um, that we can support um, we, we want to avoid these individuals with FASD ending up in detrimental situations. Oh, I mean, unsupported, you can just see that um, spiral of school disengagement and yes. et cetera, et cetera, that, yeah. um, that spiral. That was, yeah, that's right, ending up in the justice system. Um, yeah. and, and you do wonder, I guess, how undiagnosed FASD is in that population of people involved in the justice system too, don't you? Yeah, it's, it's actually really huge. So there have been studies on that, uh, particularly over in the Kimberley region, and there has been uh, I can't remember the exact stats, but there is a high number of individuals that are incarcerated that have an underlying FASD diagnosis. Mm, so interesting. Oh, I can't thank you enough, Kate. That has been the most fascinating deep dive. I've just found that so enlightening. Um, so thank you so much um, for chatting with me. It's been really lovely. Thank you. It's been great.
And thank you to everyone for tuning in and supporting our podcast. We will be back with another Speak Up conversation next Wednesday. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.